Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. For today's episode, Jim is joined by Matt Johnson, head strength and conditioning coach for the Chicago Bulls. Coach Johnson has been with the Bulls organization since 2012, starting as a strength and conditioning intern. He was promoted to assistant strength and conditioning coach in 2013 and served in that role for three years before being named to his current position in 2016. And with that, let's get into the episode. I went to undergrad at uh, University of uh, Wisconsin Lacrosse. I got my uh, undergrad degree in uh, exercise and sports science. After that, I did a uh, summer internship at the University of Wisconsin, uh, working with uh, Olympic sports uh, there, basketball, men's hockey, women's hockey, uh, women's volleyball, uh, swim and dive, um, men's golf. Uh, it was a really, really cool opportunity to kind of get to work with all those uh, sports, especially for me kind of directly out of, um, yeah. directly out of college. So um, I think that opportunity more than any other opportunity I've had taught me how to coach just from observing, uh, you know, I worked under Jim Snyder and Ray Eady there and kind of seeing how they commanded a weight room uh, and impacted their athletes. Uh, it kind of taught me, you know, I knew all the science and read all the books, but I think more than anything that that experience taught me how to coach. Um, after that, uh, you know, you kind of in, in strength and conditioning, you come to a crossroads a little bit, uh, you know, do you go pursue, uh, a job, uh, probably a, a, a lower tier job or uh, go back to school. Um, and I kind of decided I wasn't ready to pursue a job yet. So I went back to school, uh, got my master's uh, at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse as well uh, in human performance. Uh, that program does still exist, I believe. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, so I spent a year doing that, uh, finished my master's in a year. Uh, and then in order to complete that, I had to go do another internship. Um, so I ended up interning with the Chicago Bulls for a full year. Um, and uh, it was an awesome experience. You know, I'd deal with, I've never, never dealt with professional athletes before. Um, the culture, uh, as a lot of strength coaches know, that was established with the Chicago Bulls, with Al Vermeil and Eric Helland, um, was awesome to walk into and be a part of. Um, and uh, after that, uh, the head strength coach with the Bulls, who was there for like 25 years, uh, left and took a uh, strength and conditioning job in college. Uh, my uh, The assistant strength coach at the time got bumped up to head, and then I got bumped up to assistant. Uh, I was the assistant uh, strength coach with the Bulls for three years. And then uh, after that, I got bumped up to the head strength coach position, uh, and I've been here ever since. So this is my ninth season now uh, with the, the Chicago Bulls. Wow. Ninth total season or ninth in the current position? Uh, ninth total season. Yeah. Nine, nine yep. seasons. And uh, can you tell me just a little bit about that? It's such an important point, the culture that Vermeil, the, the culture that was there in regard to strength and training and development. Yeah, I, I've just, uh, honestly, I've just tried not to mess it up. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it it's already, it kind of had already been established. So when I walked in there, you know, you're seeing NBA guys snatch and clean pull and squat and, uh, deadlift and split squat and, and they're doing it with great movement quality. Uh, and there was already that buy-in. Uh, so, so taking over the, the, uh, the program was, was easy. Just don't, don't mess it up. And, and, you know, I put my own spin on things, but sure. uh, for the most part, training is training. Good training is good training. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very thankful for Al and Eric and, and uh, Nick Popendick as well to, 
you know, I just walk into a, a, a good situation and I've tried to keep it going. I like that, man. Is, is it a ripple effect? Would you say, I mean, here we are 2021 post pandemic during pandemic, the last dance was everywhere, but um, I, there, there's a 30 for 30 on the Boston South. No, on the Pistons. You ever see that one? Uh, I like bits and pieces maybe. Dude. Uh, but but I know it highlighted like the bad boys and how, how much more physical they were than, than everyone else. 100%. And it was, it's amazing. It's worth watching. One of my favorite 30 for 30s. And one of the reasons I say that is because um, in that mini doc, they start to address sort of the legend of Michael Jordan. And essentially one of the thoughts was that the Pistons were so physical and that was sort of like the hurdle that he couldn't quite jump that after, I don't remember what year it was, but after they knocked out the Bulls, he committed to the weight room. The following year, he was a monster, but he felt his teammates fell off. So he then started to recruit Scotty and all the other guys into the weight room. He's like, we have to have a physical presence. We've got to be durable if we want to make, make it through the gauntlet of the Detroit Pistons. And then, of course, the last dance came out and highlight, highlighted that a little bit more. Is that still, would you say that's maybe where the heart of that culture came from, at least in part? Yeah, no, no question. I think, you know, the, the, the heart of it is, is probably rooted with Al and Eric um, and kind of their ability to get NBA guys to train the right way. Um, I, I think that's where the heart of it is. Um, yeah. Their attention to detail with coaching. So they're never, their care for the athletes. They're never putting the athletes in a, in a bad position. They found a way to get elite professional athletes with, with probably very little training background to do the right things. Um, and I think that's that's where the the heart of the culture comes from. I think Al established a uh, Al and Eric both established a culture of continuing to learn and be better. They had consultants in all the time. The continuing education budget was huge. They never uh, they never just settled and got lost and kind of stuck in their ways. Um, you know, they were constantly adapting, constantly uh, adjusting, and, and staying with the times. So I think that that's kind of the heart of the culture. I would credit it all to to Al and Eric. I love that. And I'm taking notes here as we, as we speak. So you address something really interesting, two parts, actually. One is I'm, I'm really curious to hear about the motivation component, meaning like, how do you motivate someone who's already in a lot of respects made it, you know, the, these high caliber professional athletes to train and work harder. That's, I guess, part one of the question. Well, let's leave it there. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's interesting. I, my experience I had at the University of Wisconsin, uh, you know, hockey was my favorite sport to work with there. And yeah. motivating them is is completely different than motivating a basketball player. Um, so before I'd walk, you know, I kind of walked in thinking motivation is, is easy. Like you can you can you can get after hockey guys, um, shout, scream. There's a huge, you know, a huge kind of weight room culture. And uh, as I, I guess a, a long answer to your question is I've kind of adjusted the way I get buy-in that doesn't work with basketball athletes. It just doesn't, um, you know, buy-in comes from trust and, uh, player ownership. So I'm not this type of strength coach that's going to lay the hammer down and, and shout and scream and blow a whistle in the weight room. Uh, I encourage the players to take ownership of the program. So it's a little bit of give and take, uh, you know, we, we are going to, we're good. There are some, you know, some non-negotiables. We're going to squat. We're going to pull, we're going to, you know, we're going to split squat. We're going to do basic strength movements and we're going to do them really well, but I want you to have a say in what, uh, what those movements are. You know, right. I, I, you know, guy might not like to have a bar on his back. So we search or squat him instead. 
um, or front squat them or split squat them. Um, so there's, there's, there's some non-negotiables in regards to that, but, but I think giving players some ownership in their, in their program, uh, provides huge buy-in, uh, they feel like you're caring for them and then they feel like they have a, a part of the, an investment in, in their, their uh, physical health. Yeah, no doubt. And I'll tell you, that was sort of a loaded question because I've got like, uh, it's, it's far more difficult in the implementation, but I'm pretty convinced the, it, there's, it's, there's a very, I would say a far too often overlooked component of motivation that coaches everywhere seem to gloss over. It's something that we have been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to support people with, but it, it, it looks as simple as this. There is no motivation if you don't first align with one's motives. And it's kind of as simple as that. And that's, that's the thing that I, I don't know if it's the internet era or the trickle down effect of what sort of an old school strength coach looks like. But um, for me and, and, uh, and in my setting, we work with, do y'all work? We're running a, uh, we're running a youth speed and agility camp uh, in May. We're working with freshman basketball players who've never done anything before. And we're working with a football team who's got some folks who are looking at big 10 situations, you know, like we, we've run the full gamut um, here and it cannot look the same session to session. If there's right. not, you know, it's not, there, there are times I'll just say that. I, I mean, there are days I raise my voice and, and almost lose it. Not, not lose my mind, but lose my voice just because, because uh, the, the sports have stacked in that way. Meaning maybe we have football coming in followed by hockey or lacrosse or something like that. And, and it's all one sort of uh, mindset. Um, but then there are days when I pull back and it's more observation. And it's, it's maybe a gentler encouragement. And it's not always what you think. You know, there are days when we have to go uh, a little more gentle with football, depending on the context. But, but you just hit the nail on the absolute head, which is um, kind of ask them. And I love uh, the non-negotiables. We, we just, we, those are our anchor concepts. So these right. are our anchors. Um, we take them place to place. These are non-negotiable but we're going to give you a little rope. We call it the anchor and tether method. We'll give you a little rope to let out or pull in. And I love what you said. If you don't, if, okay, fine. You're not a back squat guy. We're still going to squat. You can, and let me show you some possible adaptations, front, search, yep. et cetera. Yep. That, that it can even be said on a micro level too. You know, athlete to athlete, you have to adjust your, your coaching style. Um, you know, I'm not, that's nothing new, but uh, you know, I have, I have a couple guys that I can get after it with and, and, get behind them and spot them and, and get in their ear on a, on a, on a squat. And I have a couple of guys that I just stand back on and kind of let them, let them do their thing and just observe and make sure, um, you know, technically they're, they're sound, but uh, yeah. on a micro level, athlete to athlete, that can change too. Yeah, no doubt. I would imagine. And, and I actually, you were very nice to invite me to uh, come observe one day. And I loved seeing it because you were, you were working the room, so to speak. You know, you were, you were with one guy talking one way and you were, you know, it was, it was a case by case analysis which I would assume that at your level, um, not massive roster sizes, like a big college team and each person with such an individualized and unique background. It's not like a bunch of juniors over here and seniors over here experience wise. It's all right. This guy may have been at Texas, um, you know, with, with Pootie, you know, back squat, moving weight and, you know, and then, and then finds himself in, in your environment and someone else may have been at a different program. Someone might be 34. Someone might be, 19 21 you know yep. something like that yep. so I, I i would say to not do what you just said would would be a flaw is that is that a different like, like how do you maintain uh i guess the fitness to keep doing that and looking over and over and be so specific yeah no you, i mean you actually just nailed the age uh age range i have uh spot on so it's really? not, i have a 19 year old uh who just, just turned 19 and a 34 year old uh who's been in the league for 
for 10 years. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the rookies uh, and younger guys are a lot easier because they, they kind of walk into your culture. And in our case, we've had three or four straight years drafting a, a one year college player. So they've only had three months of training. Most of them have had a training age of three months. Um, so they kind of walk in fresh. Those guys don't do anything usually. No, nice. it's well, it, well, yeah. I mean, as far as I would say the majority of basketball players do not do strength and conditioning in high school from what I've observed. Um, the, and then if, if they're really talented, they're getting to a big time college and they're only there for three months. Um, right, right. So even if the training is good, it hasn't, there's not enough of a, uh, work capacity or, or a training base established. Um, so that, so when I get these, you know, some one and done guys, they're coming in with essentially a training age of zero. Um, so that they're, they're a lot easier to work with the, the tough, uh, NBA athlete is the 10 year vet that, uh, has maybe do, been doing some bad things for 10 years, 10, you know, nine plus years, uh, or different things, and then trying to get them to buy into, uh, your program. That's, that's where it gets, it gets tricky and tough. And you have right. to give that 10 year vet a lot more say in what he's doing. He's, he's made it work for him for 10 years. So, right. um, who am I to tell him, you know, don't, don't do this or don't do that, or you got to do it my way. So there's a little bit more give and take with, uh, with the vets. And, you know, I've kind of found what works is just slowly implementing a couple things, uh, with your own philosophy and strategy, uh, seeing what sticks and seeing what doesn't. Um, and eventually, you know, hopefully over time, you've kind of sprinkled in enough where it becomes your, your program and the player takes ownership of it as well. That's a really smart move. And it, it reminds me of one of those first words you use, which is trust. Right. And I've, I've found, especially with sort of talented and veteran athletes that uh, trust isn't a slideshow. It's not a resume. It's not anything like that. It's, it's conversations regularly over time um, that ultimately build that trust. So if you were, okay. So do you ever do like, preseason meetings and analysis or is that too formal for a lot of these guys is most of it happen in, in just like person to person conversation yeah most of it's person to person conversation yeah. um you know formally uh i will do an end of the year kind of review where i said i sit every guy down and i just say you know what are what did you think of the strength program like be honest i, I want the feedback do we need to change things to you know how do you do more structure less structure what do you, you know um, that's where I get a lot of feedback. Um, for the most part, fortunately it's been positive up to this yeah. point, but, uh, yeah. you know, I think, uh, before that postseason meeting though, it, it's just, uh, organic conversations that happen in the weight room. Um, yeah. and you know, it, even with regards to my first question, I ask every single guy that the moment they walk in is how you feeling today? Right. Uh, like I take a take, you know, I take, We've got all the, the fanciest technology and monitoring tools and equipment in the world, and it doesn't replace that question. That question yeah. gives me more insight and feedback mm. into the status of the athlete than, than anything else we use. Um, so uh, on a micro level, that happens every day uh, when a guy steps in the weight room. It's, it's how you feeling, what are you thinking today, you know, um, and, and we go from there. I, I love that idea, man, because <clears> – <throat> That is a question that I ask myself all the time. Is, is what's the best form of analysis? In fact, I just we're working on getting a, uh, a journal article published. That's pretty exciting. Um, not to go on too big of a tangent, I'll circle immediately back to this idea. But you know, there's a ton of science out there on exercise in the brain, like what um, what chemicals are produced 
roughly in what quantities in response to certain sorts of physical stimulation. We can track those things. And when you identify uh, certain increases in dopamine, uh, norepinephrine, serotonin, acetyl acetylcholine, and sort of fourth place, you know, you can make certain assumptions about mood and affect and, and how that should play out in the person who's, who's just got an exercise. Okay. And, and that makes sense to me. But when we did our studies, we were like, well, we could, we could measure serotonin um, or we could just ask people how they're feeling. And wouldn't that be an, just an incredibly valuable bit of feedback to get? You know? yep. So, so one of our most recent studies, essentially we, we call it triangulating the data. So certain sort of exercise is, um, has been shown to move these neurochemicals in a certain way. Those neurochemicals have been associated with improvements in mood and affect. But instead of going back and measuring the neurochemical production, we just ask about mood and affect. You know, how do you feel? Because of there's so many other complicating factors. And you said that the, the evaluations you all do, I don't know, maybe you do sleep monitoring, maybe you've got the whoop uh, watches or, you know, different things like this. But, but I don't know which one of those might, might uh, uh, have the capacity to analyze if things are sort of rough in your relationship at home, or if you've got a sick relative or, or who knows what could be on your place. Right. So the, the human component. I don't, I don't see how we'd ever invent a technology that would jump the human component. Right. And, and, you know, the fascinating part to that I've kind of been reading about a little bit uh, and probably need to dive a little bit more on is how perception drives the data. So your perception, uh, yeah. the example I'll give is, so we have, uh, we take HRVs every morning. 90% mm -hmm. uh, of the time, if the athlete says, man, I slept good last night, I already know his HRV is going to be fantastic. Yep. Um, so uh, like perception is driving oftentimes the HRV response, the global response of the body. Uh, it may not be that uh, it's like a ch chicken versus the egg. Like what, you know, what, yep. what came first perception is driving sometimes the data we're collecting anyways. So if the athlete is perceiving their uh, mood to be good or perceiving them, them to be w well rested, the data is going to reflect that. Right. That's so interesting because I, I was actually just thinking about, that as well. I'm working on a, a different article. I have to share this stuff with you, but there's obviously a lot of uh, crossover here. Um, so yeah, sleep is a big one for me. So I'm glad you brought that up. So below a certain threshold, you know, feeling bad is nearly unavoidable. It doesn't matter necessarily how you perceive it. But I, and, but I think the threshold is, is a little wider than we think because of that perception component. Um, in, in fact, there's a, there's a researcher out there. She's brilliant. Her name is Ellen Langer. She's out at, she's a Harvard psychologist. She wrote literally wrote the book on mindfulness, but she doesn't practice mindfulness in the way that one might think. Like she doesn't meditate. She doesn't do yoga. She doesn't do those things. She, I, she's very clear about the idea that there's nothing wrong with them. She doesn't, she just arrives at a mindful state in a different way. Anyway, yeah. part one of her, she did this research study where essentially uh, people slept in a lab, hooked up to all sorts of stuff, all sorts of monitors. And and they either slept, I, I can't remember the conditions exactly, but you'll get the point. Um, they would sometimes toy with the clock. So uh, some people would sleep eight, nine hours. They would sleep a healthy amount. Some people would sleep six or seven hours. And some people would sleep whatever the other one was, but they would sort of mess with the clock. So someone may have slept for seven hours, but think they got eight and a half and, right. and report feeling wonderful. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, that's fascinating. That's, isn't that that's wild? Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get that uh, get that study from you. So I, I gotta, I'm gonna look this up because I think it's so important. And you know, dude, especially especially in sport, 
you know, mind over matter is sort of a cliche. And, and I don't know that it's always true, but mind certainly influences matter and definitely influences behavior. And I'm sure you've seen it, but I, I've never seen an, an athlete with like a negative disposition who routinely produces, um, you know, in, in, in any area of their life. So I think it's an interesting thing to bring up. All right, I'm making a note to myself. I'll send you that. Uh, do you play? Do you play basketball? I used to. <laughs> you play at lacrosse? Uh, I did not play at lacrosse. No, I played in uh, high school a little bit. Um, unfortunately, uh, college doesn't have a place for 5'10". Uh, let's see, when I left high school, 5'10", 130-pound uh, point guards. So, I believe you. There's a place for uh, everybody. <laughs> um, so I actually really didn't even get into the weight room until like maybe my sophomore year in college. Really? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, I'd kind of been missing – one, I mean, once you leave high school, and you're not participating in athletics anymore. You got to find, I'm still a competitive guy. And I wanted to kind of find uh, a place I could be competitive and, and turns out the weight room, I can compete with myself for 50, 60 years, hopefully. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so that's kind of how I got, got into lifting, but uh, I play uh, occasionally some noon ball, not during COVID now, but uh, occasionally we play some noon ball, uh, at the facility so i like it all right so hypothetically i want a job like yours how good at basketball do i need to be do i have to be able to get out there and shoot a little bit you know that's that's really interesting uh it depends on the coaching staff and what they're looking for and management and what they're looking for um you know i know in some other with some other teams and positions in the nba they really want a strength coach that gets on the floor a little bit um mm -hmm. if nothing more than to to rebound or help with skill development um personally uh that's it's kind of I, my opinion on that kind of differs uh i think there is enough of a niche in strength and conditioning uh and i think everything we do in the weight room is non-specific and general um that i would be it would be a disservice to to the athlete to have me on the court trying to teach uh teach basketball skill um Fair enough. but some some places are looking for that so yeah um you know, that that's probably where like an ex player that has an extra science background can kind of get, get in, get their foot in the door a little bit. I'm going to make a bold statement and I hope I don't, uh, if Steve Kerr was going to call me and offer me a job, I hope I don't uh, step on his toes here. But I think, but that, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I love the idea of getting out there and maybe just like banging around a little bit and just having fun with the guys. But, um, you know, you'd never think of that in the inverse. That's almost a discredit to the field. You know, I, I you'd never ask, um, in any serious way, at least, and, and I'll speak only for me, not for you, but, but I'd never ask our assistant basketball coach to come show us right. you know, what, what is a Zercher squat, show me the ins and outs, show, you know, go coach. Right. You never right. ask. Um, so I, I think I've got sort of a, a more um, maybe segmented. Okay. Let me, let me pick my words carefully. Obviously you're part of the coaching staff. It has to be cohesive. The pieces of the puzzle have to fit together, but it feels like in, in an operation that's, it's at such a high level. Um, distinguishing between skill sets is also really necessary. So that's where I'll leave it. Steve Kerr, I'll send you my cell phone number if you're. <laughs> um, okay, so you you also tapped on an idea that that you shared with me, and this was years ago at this point. Um, you were at Nutria. I don't know if you remember this, but but someone someone asked you a question. I think D Rose was on the team. I think that's how long ago it was. If it wasn't Rose, it was Butler. But it was okay. They were, they were asking about the star at the time. And they were like, um, they're like, well, what sort of sports specific training do you do in the weight room uh, for player X? 
and your response was so freaking good. And uh, maybe you've changed your mind on it. So, so feel free to push back, but you were like, well, so, so we do, I mean, we squat. Uh, I learned from you the potato sack deadlift. I think that was a variation and, and uh, different things like that. And, and the, and, and the coach kept coming back to you and saying, yeah, but what about sport specific stuff? And, and you're like, well, this, they, they play basketball. They go, you know, that's, that's right. sport specific training. They do. Right. You know, I don't want to speak for you, but, but touch on that. If you no, I mean, you, you're kind of hitting on my, my overall general philosophy, I guess, which is, uh, I, I try to train the qualities necessary, uh, to help you with every movement in your sport, if that makes sense. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to give you work capacity strength, power, uh, speed, uh, and multiplanar versions of all those, but, uh, they're just, it, it's, it's everything we do in the weight room is, is general. It's just a general prep for the most part. Um, being, and I'll, I'll phrase that another way, being strong, being powerful, being fast, uh, in all three planes is specific to, to the sport. Fair enough. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and I can achieve that specificity with focusing on training those qualities without going on the court and doing basketball drills. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, you know, this kind of touches on coaches and there's a whole nother uh, field kind of developing now of, of skill development, spe- specifically skill development, uh, player development, coaches that don't coach uh, aren't part of the coaching staff. They're there. It's kind of its own staff. Um, so there, it's even getting that dialed in where there's a coaching staff, a player development staff, and a strength and conditioning staff hmm. now where all three are kind of working, working together. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, at least in my field where in my setting, I should say the, the player development staff is working on the skills and the specific stuff applied to the sport. My job is to work on the specific qualities necessary to compete in the sport. And then the coaches obviously are, are tactically and, and uh, technically co- coaching the team. Yeah. I, I mean, it just makes so much sense to me, you know, I, and it's uh you know, I worry that sometimes um, I worry that trying to get too specific, I, I worry they could do a couple things. I worry that people in the strength field specifically might step out of their wheelhouse to, in, to aim at sport specific um, drills or whatever they might be. I worry that it's too easy to fall into sort of, you know, what, what people looking on Instagram might describe as sort of like the gimmicky uh, version of strength and conditioning where everything's banded up and attached. You need all this like auxiliary stuff. And, and maybe I'll gloss over that and just come back to my, one of my core philosophies, which is just that a body is a body. There are only a certain amount of things that the human body is capable of doing safely. Um, and we usually start with trying to perfect those movements, protecting major, you know, moving well, protect major joints, start to, like you said, move on multiple planes, uh, gradually onboard intensity, whether that's speed or weight or whatever it might be. And, and then you, you do that alongside the playing of the sport. And, and the outcomes are usually pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll touch on this too. You know, sometimes in my setting, being more specific is actually putting the athlete in harm's way. Hmm. So we, we, we play four games. I mean, this season, four to five games a week um, where with your high minute guys, they're getting 30 to 40 minutes of right. basketball activity. Right. And if you're looking at the sport that, you know, there's a huge plyometric component to that. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be a specific sport specific strength coach and take the athlete out and start doing uh, repeat jumps and yeah. med ball dunks and uh, all that stuff in season, th- there's a little bit of overload there uh, yes. too much in my, in my opinion. Uh, and I've kind of seen, uh, you know, 
things like patel tendonitis stuff crop starts to crop up and quad tendon stuff or you know that's kind of when you're getting the the little nicks and 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 some joint pain or, or whatever it may be um is when you start stacking uh movement on top of movement and it's just it's just constant through a six-month season so uh even in season especially i i kind of tend to avoid stacking the movements they're already doing on the court uh at least with the high minute guys uh on top of them on my end of things so that's a really good that's a that's a really good point it makes total sense if someone's running and jumping countless times over the course of the week do you really need to add plyometric training or include that sport specific plyometric training to, to the weight room component unlikely and, and maybe this could be a disservice to them and now i'm even thinking basketball geez at, at, at our level like they're playing year round and they're not in, you know their varsity season they're playing aau or some some sort of club level so uh, I think it's a really important thing to know. Yeah, you're not trying to. What do you, you call it? Stacking. You you, you don't you don't. It's repetitive stress is an important idea. So, right, right. Your body on the whole makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and then too, like that's not to say you know I don't want people to perceive that as we're not doing max effort jumps and med ball throws and totally. accelerations in season. Uh, but I view those you know if you're really studying basketball is a little bit different. It's a, it's a max effort power dominant single response movement that we're trying to attack power output yep um which is much different than say like aerobic plyometrics or the elastic plyometrics they're getting in their sport um right so i mean we still chuck med balls we still do plyos we still do box jumps we still do all that stuff in season uh but i i view that type of power work as as uh as non-specific it's not the same movements they're 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 practicing on the court Right. That's and that's what in, in correct me if my any of my terms are off here, but that's what we're doing right now. We're at the back end of a uh, a strange spring football season, but uh, that, that's what we're doing. Sing, like single doubles and singles, high intensity, high velocity. Like um, we're trying to move nearly no volume. You know, volume is almost non-existent down this final stretch. But yeah, that's the sort of stuff that we're trying to do as well. Um, yeah, I like it. Okay, so you, you may have already touched on it, but I, I've got a, you know, we, we have a lot of high school and college uh, coaches and athletes who listen to the podcast. If you had to give some advice to, or, or maybe even go younger, youth, high school, college, to just like, like, what's your best advice for an up and coming athlete, basketball player, but really any athlete, um, when it comes to strength, conditioning, and training? Uh, this, this is a pretty easy one. Uh, s- slow cook the process. So, um, especially with youth athletes, I think exposing them to as many, as wide of a movement catalog as possible, um, and getting technically proficient in everything is going to lay a foundation for you in the future to get stronger and more powerful. If you start loading up weight and Olympic lifting and, and doing power work and speed work and sports specific work, and you do start doing all that stuff without a foundation, you're just cutting your, you're just cutting yourself short. Um, I, I, I cannot emphasize that enough, establishing a, a general strength, uh, and movement catalog, uh, for high school and, and even, even younger, uh, athletes is, is essential. I mean, I, I get, uh, 19 year olds that have never squatted before. We won't, we won't put a bar in their back for a year. Like they're going to learn how to goblet squat. They're going to learn how to double kettlebell front squat, and we're going to get technique perfect so that we can load up the bar when we eventually progress to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's. That's my biggest piece of advice, especially for basketball athletes where the weight room is not really ingrained in uh, their their sport culture yet. So I think it's really good advice. And now I've got uh, maybe a tough one. This is my final question. 
Okay. What, what sort of lessons and maybe pro is just like wildly different, but what sort of lessons do you see some of your clientele uh, need? And, and here's what I mean by that. What sort of lessons can you try to teach through strength and conditioning so that whatever the next stage of, of their lives is effective or, or happy or, or just healthy, whatever it might be. Because we say this all the time, it, you know, the only guarantee of any athletic career is that someday it will come to an end. Um, and, and the folks that you're working with, you know, they might be blessed with a 10 year plus NBA career, but the end is, but they're in the final stretch. So how do you prepare people yeah. when that end comes? No, that's, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, from a, from a physical and health standpoint, my goal is always, and I, I talk to this with my players about it, they get, they get quizzed on it a couple times a year too. Uh, but my goal is always to provide self-proficiency. So I don't want them to have to depend on me, uh, for strength and conditioning, even with, if they're with, to know what good strength and conditioning is, and then to, to implement it. Like I want to be able to teach them enough about strength and conditioning where, 10 years from now, I get a text message from Kirk Heinrich and he's uh, talking about uh, a skip technique and he's got a high school athlete he's working with. And what, you know, you think I should start him at goblet squat? Like that's where I want to get to is like, right. I want, I want them to be able to essentially, I, I you know, I, I quiz our guys all the time. I'm like, what, what's, what's the program today? You, you, you tell me, you, you write me a good program and tell me, what it is so and i want it that way so that in the summer i don't have to get a they don't they, like i don't want them depending on me it's just mm -hmm. not i don't believe in creating a culture of dependence and i think uh you know it's just a that can lead to self-entitlement and it's just not something i I'm, um i'm big on uh so from a long-term standpoint it's, it's teaching them how to to program and, and lift correctly and be able to carry that with them beyond their career and in some cases if they go into player development or coaching or uh, something else in the field they have a little bit of an understanding of what what goes on in the weight room i think it's really good we, we may have talked about this the last time we spoke we we have an idea we call it concept not script you know we're not going to write the script for you all the time yes we'll have a workout in the weight room but what we're trying to actually give you is a set of concepts so that you can put this together like you said to be lifelong healthy uh healthy learners okay so now maybe the harder part of that what kind of conversations are going on or what's going on in the mind of a mid thirties, late, probably end of career guy who, who might be seeing the end uh, from the neck up. What does that look like for you? What's important there? Um, you know, I haven't, uh, outside of a handful of guys, I haven't really had anyone come through that's retired directly from uh, oh, really? the Bulls. Yeah. I, you know, I think Kirk, Kirk Heinrich would be the, the one that kind of comes to mind. Sure. Um, and you know the goal. The, I think the goal for them while they're while they're with us and still playing is to keep them healthy and try to you know preserve their career and extend their career um, as long as they want to continue playing men mentally. Uh, I want to make sure that physically they can do that. Um, so I, w while we have uh, older athletes like that, it becomes about managing their workload, promoting recovery habits. Um, you know, maybe you're dialing down the, the speed and power work, but I think, uh, you know, there's a reason old man strength is a, is a term. Uh, Dude, I bank on it every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I mean, strength becomes even more important for those athletes, especially from a hormonal standpoint. Uh, you know, as soon as they hit 29, 30 and testosterone starting to dip, 
you, you've got to touch on that and get them loading up a little bit to, to, to try to preserve that as long as possible. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. I guess I, I think little- it does. And I may have given you a tough one because you honestly, the, the biggest transferable component you may have addressed in, the, in answering the first part. Um, it really is. It's the awareness. Uh, it's the self-proficiency, the self-awareness to be able to sort of understand and, and direct your own outcomes that, you know, you're teaching that essentially you're developing that through strength and conditioning. But that's the thing that I've noticed that a lot of people have a tough time with post-career. So I, yeah, I think you kind of already said it, like, um, not a lot of, from my experience, not a lot of post-career athletes, especially at the really high levels, want to go work a nine to five and, and be told what to do and sit at a desk and stuff like that. So right. un- that's an understandable sentiment, but I've also seen a lot of folks have a difficult time with uh, the freedom of loosely speaking, sort of an entrepreneurial lifestyle because they may, they may be driven toward independence, but they may not have the self-awareness, self-proficiency to be able to navigate that space post-career. And, I, and I'll tell you, I think that's, that's, that, that's a major reason why a lot of post-career athletes have such a tough time, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally. In my opinion, you know, yeah, all, all yeah. fanfare goes away. All the, the chasing of a, a title and a championship, a self of a sense of self goes away, and all of a sudden, it, you know, if, if someone like you and a set of good coaches hasn't onboarded these self-aware, uh, self-proficient uh, capacities, then then sadly, sometimes you find people just sort of floating out there. Yeah, yeah, I think too. You know, having a, a, a you know, I think the NBA does a great job of this, but having a, a separate player development uh program that highlights stuff off the court is important too given yeah. you know it's not just or out of the weight room I, you know it's not just the tools i'm giving them or, or what they're learning on the court there's a whole other component with setting them up mentally uh setting athletes up mentally to to succeed uh in, in everyday life um you know i think one of the big things we always talk about is, is building habits um and that's you know that's when you get a 19 year old it, it's he needs habits built to, you know, he needs to learn to, he needs to do this every day and he needs, you know, or, or I need to make a healthy food choice. Um, you know, there's a, there's a huge component to that too. Um, and I think kind of equipping guys with the tools necessary to off the court to make good, healthy decisions in their life is, is, uh, important as well. I love it. I think it's really good. Uh, okay. So I said that was the final question. It's not, this is the real final question. Who's the strongest basketball player to come through your gym? Wow. Um, Pound for pound or absolute strength? Oh, uh, let's do both. Let's do both. Okay. All right. Uh, absolute strength is uh, Cristiano Felicio on the roster right now. Uh, yep. Monster from Brazil. Uh, monster. How, how uh, that, that, that one. 6'10", 275. Um, so, I mean, he's huge. He's, he's a monster. Right around? Yeah, and he's mobile, moves well, great feet. Um, He's, he's uh, the strongest I've ever pound for, or I'm sorry, strongest absolute strength I've ever worked with. Um, the pound for pound question is tricky. Um, I could say the most explosive is, is easy. That's Derek Rose uh, without question. Um, really? Even in the uh, weight room, he was just sort of different to look at. Yeah. I mean, you know, once, a, once he got a, a great base and a lot of that came after uh, the ACL, um, sure. but you know, going through ACL rehab and establishing a great base and towards the end of that rehab, being able to, you know, seeing what he was doing in the weight room was uh, incredible. I mean, I'm talking, you know, he, he picks up snatching on day one and his bar path is so good. He clips his forehead uh, like, and he's never done it before. And it's, 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 uh, um, 
he, he's easily the most explosive. Uh, pound for pound, the strongest. Uh, it's it's probably either uh, Derek or, or Zach Levine. Um, really? Right now. Yeah, I've got uh, our rookie uh, has got potential to get there um, as well, but not, not quite yet. So not yet. Fair enough. I like the potential. Um, I like it. And well, actually, I like everything that we've talked about today, man. I, I always enjoy our conversations. I, I, I love the alignment in, in a lot of our philosophy. It's so cool to see what you're doing at such a high level. Um, I think it's really meaningful. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate that. I guess for, for folks who've been listening, you're, you're where again right now? I'm in Cleveland right now. Cleveland, you're Ohio. Hotel in Cleveland, taking time out to talk to us. Very kind of you. Um, <laughs> and heading back to Chicago when? Uh, we'll be back uh, tonight, probably around midnight. So Okay. So by the time we put this out, you'll be back uh, back in Chicago. So hopefully yeah. the snow will have melted. It'll look more like a true spring and, and we'll be good to go. So Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, hey, I, I look forward to many more conversations. Best of luck on the trip. And we will we'll talk soon. Man. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, Coach. This was- Do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them is up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project, and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Group. They do holiday cards. They do wedding cards. They help you. They help you not only celebrate special occasions, but make them that much more special. And like I said, if you are a small business owner or a large business owner, they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods. You just can't find that combo, honestly, anywhere else. Find them online at mightyprint.com. That's M-I-T-E print, P-R-I-N-T.com. And on Instagram, same thing, at mightyprint, M-I-T-E print. And tell them the Good Athlete Project sent you.